Greetings, and we welcome you to another episode of Churches Changing, a podcast that's exploring the new ministry frontier that we find ourselves in, in the 2020s. I'm Paul Nixon, and I'm here with my co-host, Beth Estock. Hi, Beth. Hey, Paul. How are you doing today? How is Joseph, Oregon? Joseph, Oregon is magical. And for those of you that don't know, I did something highly unusual. I took a church and moved to the mountains of northeastern Oregon. It's called the uh, Swiss Alps of Oregon. And to let you know a little bit of how remote this place is, the road literally ends six miles south of me around a glacier lake. And you either have to hop on a horse or start hiking your way out through the Eagle Cap Wilderness. So six more miles and that's the end of that. Yeah. That is the end of that. Or the beginning of something even better, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I wake up to mountains every morning and go to bed with them every night, kind of um, all around me. It's just, um, it's beautiful to watch the mountains. That's gorgeous. I am in the middle of the city as we chat today. And whether we're in the mountains or we're in the urban even if we're on an island in the Pacific, it's hard to be fully removed from the hamster wheel of crisis that we find ourselves in this year especially, but it seems like it's just ramping up year after year, this sense of perpetual crisis. Everything seems to be drama. Yes, we're feeling it in our politics. We're feeling it in all of our institutions. We're even feeling it when we go to a restaurant and we have to wait twice as long because there's not enough staff. Or when we're in an airport and realize that the line is out the door and we might miss our flight because everything seems to be shifting around us. A lot of shift, a lot of change, um, and... People are getting a little bit grumpy. Mm-hmm. On a good day, we could leave it at that. And I, I feel like on other days, it's like it's, it's worse than that. We're moving into sort of a different mode as people responding to sort of this siege of crisis that seems to be happening around us. I read an article back, I don't know, about six months ago that talked about COVID and this tsunami of COVID. And he is an economist, kind of futurist guy who wrote this article, like Harvard guy, really big thinker, deep thinker. And he said, with any tsunami, we think it's the big wave that does, you know, the most damage. But it's really after the wave recedes and we're left with the remnants of the destruction that the real work begins. And I think this COVID tsunami that we've been a part of, the water is receding. And, you know, now all hell is breaking loose because, wow, it really shifted a lot in our world. It did indeed. For many of our listeners, we are obviously focused on the ways that the pandemic impacted the behavior of people in and around our ministries. But if you kind of step back for a moment from the ministry of our churches, there's just a lot of crazy going on around us that begs the question of the church, what are are we going to do as witnesses of the gospel in a time like this? 
Yes, and you wrote an incredible article last month on your blog that when you shared it with me, I said it was a mic drop blog. And the title of that blog was Ministry in a Season of Perpetual Crisis. And it was very sobering. And the most notable aspect of this moment you write in history is this unending crisis. You say, we've entered a season where there are so many crises that our reptilian brains are shifting into overdrive. We're going to put that article in the show notes because it is such a powerful article. But tell me, what do you mean by our reptilian brains are shifting into overdrive? Well, I think when people get into a sense that there is a fire breaking out on every front in their lives, which is impacting them with their children, announcing that they're sexually non-binary, and they and then they discover that their mother voted for a political candidate that is going to unnerve them. And then at the on the very same day, they discover that they, they go to get a haircut and it went up $10. Mm. And there's a point where something happens to us and we sort of shift into defense. You and I have played with the framework for social evolution called spiral dynamics. And there, there's color codes for different places along that journey of different worldviews. But we can we can go back backwards and forwards on that thing. And mm-hmm. there is a sense in which folks are shifting back even into a kind of response or worldview that even predates Jesus, which is sort of a fight or flight, win or lose approach which is not to denigrate anybody. It's just saying when certain life conditions are in a certain way, we go there, you know? Right. And a lot of people are that, that, are, that are college-educated and, and sophisticated in various ways are being drawn into a, a mentality about life. And our churches are just not designed for this kind of terrain. I mean, we, we're designed, I mean, if you look at what we do on Sunday mornings, it, ha, it, it is not designed for people that are dealing with existential anxiety. Yeah, although when you think about the early church, that's what they were addressing. Do you think the early church worship services looked like what we do these days? <laughs> well, I don't think the early church had worship services like we have. I think okay. that it was much more organic than I do what we have right now. Yeah, and it was much more speaking to the issues of the day and how the spirit of love could guide them and help them deal with what they were encountering. Yeah. You know, when I read the book of Acts, which I have read that book more than any other book in the Bible, probably because of the nature of my work in the last few years, I'm I'm sure I've spent more time in Acts than any other book in, in Scripture. It's not about worship. It's about gathering in a multi faceted way, and a lot of things happen when they gather, but I have a sense that those gatherings shifted depending on what was going on in the life of the community that week, that it wasn't so much a a template as it was a response to the life conditions. It was sort of gospel meets life conditions on a week-by-week basis. Yeah, there was a deep listening. I love the book of Acts. It's probably the one that I've read the most too, Paul. That story of Pentecost speaks so powerfully to me the disciples frozen in fear, in darkness, boarded up in a, in a room, 
and just wondering what do what do they do? What do they do now that Jesus is dead? And then the spirit winds open the shutter doors and they move from that fear and that rumination and trying to figure it all out in their neocortex down into their heart and their hearts open and you know, are strangely warmed. And it's like their hearts become that honing device for everything else that happens to them after that. It's not necessarily the logical move. It's the heart opened, highly irregular movement of the spirit, which they consent to. They don't manufacture things like we do today. They listen deeply and waited upon the Lord, which is very different than how our churches are configured today. So our churches were designed, and they've morphed, but they basically were designed for a world that does not exist today in terms of the way we gather, in terms of the paradigm, the expectations of what we do. Our faith is well designed for the world in which we live today, but the way that we have become organized in our practice of faith together could be lagging decades behind the point where we are at this moment. And our children have been telling us for ages that, what is it you're doing down there? You know, (laughs) uh, (laughs) know, and how does this, how is this going to help me to be a better person this week? You know, what, what, what in the world are you doing? And they've been, they've been, they and our neighbors have been sort of broadcasting back to us major disconnect. Mm -hmm. But I believe right now, in this moment of crisis, there's, there is sort of this sudden awareness that across a large a range of folks to say, wait a second, what are we doing here? In a moment like this, to just go and to, and to go through the motions that, that have been so familiar, is that really what this moment in history is asking of us as people of Christian faith? And that's a really powerful question, and I'm glad people are beginning to ask that. I actually see, you know, it's interesting perspective taking. I actually see the disintegration of what is as actually good news to the movement of what can be. So I actually see it. um, If you're going to use Jungian archetypes, I see it as the movement from maybe a static masculine structures, policy and procedures, metrics, mechanization. We can make it happen. We can manufacture the experience that we want into the divine feminine, entering into the liminal and the unknown of opening our hearts, moving from our heads into our bodies, listening deeply for the longing of the spirit in our midst and coming into an acceptance of we are beautiful incarnated love and being is where it's at, mm. not necessarily doing anymore. And that's the kind of church I want to be a part of. Well, speaking of the church you want to be a part of, you're back in a local parish for the first time in several years. And does it feel any different than, than before? I mean, granted, you're in a very different kind of place. You've never been in a mountain town, but what's it feel like stepping back in? Well, it's pure joy right now for me. I'm in my, this Sunday will be my second Sunday, so I'm definitely in honeymoon period here. (laughs) Uh, But I can tell you personally, I'm going to answer this on two different levels. Personally, 
I am a lot older than I was the last time I served at church. I hope I'm a little bit wiser. And so my whole approach here is very different. I have no need to prove anything anymore. I am entering this with a sense of curiosity and wonder. I'm consenting to um, God and the movement of the Holy Spirit and know that something is bubbling here. There's a reason that I'm here. There's a reason that we are all here together and we're going to figure it out together. But I'm in no hurry to make anything happen. I am just sitting on the edge of my seat with my bag of popcorn and waiting how the plot is going to twist and turn in this beautiful movie that I'm in. Well, you see, what you just what you just shared, though, is a sense of playful expectancy that something lovely will happen if our eyes are open, because God does tend to show up when our eyes are open we, and we discover. And you're looking, you're expecting something to happen in that little town, but, but we'll see. We'll see what happens. Yeah. And it's not, you know, it's so often, you know, in our, I guess, our corporate mindset in the church where we have to produce and, you know, metric bottom line it. It's just a very freeing way to be to say that, okay, my practice here is a practice of meeting with people, listening to story, and trying to discover the golden threads that God is calling us to move forward in a certain way. And I like that. I like to be in a place where I can practice that. People may not be aware, but I work, I'm not full-time, but I work part-time on a church staff team right now for also a kind of a surprise at this season of my life, but very grounding and really filling me with a new sense of perspective as a coach to church leaders to be back on a team. And, and when I say team, not just the staff, but with lay folks that are seeking to bring a sense of the kingdom of God to life in our community. And I'm so glad that I have that right now. I, I, feel, I feel blessed to be on that adventure. But I'll tell you what, the playbook is a throw it out the window <laughs> of all the stuff that we were saying, do this, do that, you know, back in the 1990s. It is so not the 1990s. Goodness. Do you have a sense that we're catching up with the decline that, that the some, some of the West, other Western countries have seen? I mean, we were always kind of this exceptional place in America where we, um, our churches stayed fuller longer than, say, the churches in Spain or in Canada. And what do you see happening in America right now? Well, I, I'm, I look forward to your uh, response on this because I think that you have a much better perspective or viewpoint than I do. I've lived in the Pacific Northwest for the past 25 years, and we have been living with the, that decline since I got here. It used to be, actually, that church leaders in the South and the Midwest would wag their fingers at those of us in the Pacific Northwest and say, something is wrong with you. They would. I was actually, I was working in the Southeast and, and, and there was finger wagging at parts of the country. Like they just, they're clueless. They're clueless. They don't know what they're doing. If they were gifted leaders, they would be able to grow their churches. If I just had two years there, I could double attendance in any church that I'd serve. Just let me add it. Those people <laughs> are losers out there. Yes. 
So I'm wondering now what those same leaders might be discovering in the Midwest and in the South, and maybe they're running up against some, um, some difficulty now. Well, they are running up against a lot of cubic space in their buildings that <laughs> lacks people. Um, that's for sure. And that's happening all over the place. It's happening in the mega churches and the small churches. There are a few churches that are, for whatever reason, not experiencing that, but that's a big part of it, is they are running up against disconnect. And that disconnect, I don't think, is always theological. Sometimes it is. But sometimes it's just a sense that life is a lot of work. It's demanding a lot of me. When I get to the weekend, there's certain things I need to do to care for myself, to care for my family. And thinking about going, getting dressed and going to that place and going through the routine of two or three hours there is, is, is not something that as many people are welcoming it right now. And there's just a lot of other, and some of them are, are, are watching various um, elements of worship and inspiration on their TVs, on their computer screens. Mm-hmm. But a lot of folks are, are just reading the newspaper, doing yoga, <laughs> taking a nap, making an omelet, which they're too busy to do, you know, during the, the, the other days of the week. Yeah, it's as if COVID got us off the treadmill and we don't want to get back on. And maybe church has become that uh, part of that treadmill. Early on in the pandemic, I, I recall making an omelet and I had my iPhone leaning against the toaster and there was a little preacher standing on my kitchen cabinet. And I remember thinking, this is so weird that I'm sitting here <laughs> making an omelet and there's a little man preaching by my toaster. Sometimes today I make my omelet and he's not there anymore. (laughs) So it is a a conflagration of a lot of different shifts that happened at once that many institutions are under stress right now. Mm -hmm. Some of those institutions may collapse as we know them. Others will significantly change if they're going to stay in meaningful relationship with the world. But I mean... Think about how libraries have changed in the last 50 years. Public education, the judicial system is changing. It kind of scares us a little bit with what might be happening there. Technology is crazy. Artificial intelligence mm-hmm. is about to take away a third of our jobs. Right. And that's just kind of creeping along, and nobody's really talking about it. But it's coming, you know, in the next 10 years. Ministry has to be designed... For the, for the context, it has to be an intersection between gospel as we understand that and life context. Mm-hmm. And that's not so hard, but we have to just get off the treadmill and stop just doing by rote what we always do if we're going to really ask how does, does the ministry we do really overlap with the context of the people out there. Yeah, I always like to ask this question when I do consulting. I think it's a it's a it's a mic drop moment when I ask it. You know, if Jesus came to your gathering today and told you that it's up to you to spread the good news of God's love to your town, to your county, to your state, to all of your region, to all over the world, how would you go about doing that? And would it look like what you're doing today? 
And I would say 99% of the people in the room, they, their, their jaws drop and they realize, oh my God, it would look nothing like what we're doing today. But yet, don't change anything about what we're doing today. Yeah. And even in those rare places where, for whatever reason, what we're doing we may have we may have made some some shifts and what we're doing is really meeting the needs of a of a certain slice of the demographic if you want to then zoom out from there you discover that a lot of what we are doing is so very niche with a particular demographic often an aging demographic mm-hmm. and or a whiter than average demographic with methodism mm-hmm. and then you have to to ask is that enough simply to to engage or even to revitalize a ministry with a very niche demographic that may be kind of a um, a group of folks who still are able to groove with church done the old ways when the culture's running on without us is that enough and i in my heart i say that's not where methodism has been we have always been a church of the people, I say historically, we were a church of the people that was really asking, where is the pulse in the wider culture? And right now we have lost that pulse. Well, and in your article, you call for revolution, Paul. What do you mean by that? Well, you know, there's a point where just tweaking is not enough. Mm-hmm. And I think we're, we're creeping up on a moment where something bigger has to shift than just to change the music or even to move around a dinner table and say we're going to do this in a, with, with food being served. Those are wonderful, wonderful shifts. My friend Kathy McShane would say that's church improvement, <laughs> but that is not revolution. Mm-hmm. It's certainly not innovation. Mm-hmm. But, but I would also say this, that faithful ministry is going to look like a lot of different things. And 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 in the future, we're going to rediscover some some ancient patterns. I mean, like way before the whatever United Methodist Book of Worship, we're going to discover some ancient stuff that's going to come back, and it's, we're going to discover it to be rich and deeply life giving and helpful. Some of that will be highly ritual based, mm-hmm. liturgical in its in spirit. Other kinds of new ministry will be just off of that liturgical playing field, really almost freeform, where the pastor as elevated priest on a stage is no longer there, but where it's much more much more egalitarian, much more interactive, and it's kind of hard to tell who exactly is in charge of this meeting. Yeah, when I think about throughout history where there's been major disruption— or even plague, <laughs> that it seems like the thing that reemerges is this movement back into a contemplative kind of stance in the world. Like our world has been rocked so much, we don't, we can't go back to what it was, but we don't know what it's going to be. So our practice in this liminal and this unknown is a practice of that deep listening is a practice of opening our hearts, of listening deeply for Spirit's call and trying to discern what that is in a particular context in which we find ourselves. And I think right now that the church is uniquely positioned 
to speak into the crises that is happening all over the world right now in, in and in our culture if we focus on helping people to grow those capacities. And the capacities that I'm talking about really are growing in the capacity to be self-reflective, to be able to sit with pain and discomfort in the midst of crises, the capacity to be with our fear and to not let fear overwhelm us, but to know that love casts out that fear, that we can trust in something bigger than that fear. And to focus on, well, what would be right action for us in this moment or for me in this moment, which for me is a movement into that canonic way of letting go, letting go of our ego needs for control, power, affection, and esteem so that those Holy Spirit depth of that love can move through us and help us to take the courageous steps that we need to. But it's, it's, it's not an acquiring and a, and a grasping for. It's the complete opposite. It's a practicing of letting go, a dying to self, so that the spirit can be born in our midst. Some of our listeners are involved in churches that are dealing with internal culture wars. Mm-hmm. That is not the case for the most part, as I understand where you and I are, are, are serving, even though we work in a world where it's sure raging all around us. But when the culture war is inside, it's everything you just said is, becomes even more true, but it's hard to talk about a contemplative stance when the, when the sense of dis-ease is raging, and maybe our congregation is splitting over this issue or that. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of that going on this year. Yeah, and there's this sense of, can I take as a leader, can I take a balcony position and look at it from a different viewpoint of, well, maybe this needs to play itself out. Maybe it needs to get really messy right now before there can be any sense of healing. I I don't know what those answers are, but I do know that, that we need to be, instead of reactionary, be more reflective and grounded. It's interesting that you talk about the contemplative stance. And of course, you, you wrote a book on that uh, a, yes. a few years ago entitled Discernment. Mm-hmm. But that is the, that's our series at our church, this, the contemplative stance. It's our series, uh, Work for Worship, um, this month. So we, we definitely are tracking with that as well in our, in our pondering to be faithful. And I also think that, you know, instead of, I know that I, I feel like I'm calling it in from the stands right now, but I'm just going to say it. I think that this is an opportunity for the church to shine in the way that it was originally intended to. Say more. Well, to be about the work of the transformation of lives instead of how are we going to keep the lights on <laughs> or how are we going to keep our worship numbers up. Uh, to focus on, you know, what those early apostles focused on. It was not worship numbers. Mm-hmm. It was not how much money are, are we gathering this month. It was, where are people in pain and how can the gospel speak into that? And so we can either begin that process with folks in the pew who have been shaped and formed in a way of church that's more of a consumer focus, of like we pay people to be the Christians to feed us 
Or we can begin with those bright-eyed folks in the community that don't go to church, but where we can see that the Spirit is already at work. Or we can begin as leaders experimenting in both of those arenas. And that's one reason why I'm so excited to be back in the local church, because for me, this is a very exciting time to be the church in community and to experiment with a new way of being church. In my last coaching call, which was like an hour ago, I was visiting with a woman who is a pastor of a church in a town of a couple thousand people, and it's in Kansas, and the church is still highly trusted there in this particular town. And so they were doing a a citywide children's ministry in a town of 2,000 with 150 children. Wow. But they had but but they had too few volunteers. And so it was a, a cattle call. It was just a you know, moving the children from here to here to here, and it was just a lot of frenetic movement, but that she began over the last year to wonder, what are we accomplishing by by herding these children around in all of this, and we're not even really getting to know them. Mm-hmm. And we're not beginning to develop relationship with which to form them. And, you know, honestly, if you take seriously the, the story of Jesus calling the children to be formed with them, you know. Mm-hmm. And so they just brought it to an end and took it down to 20 children where they could begin to go deep and to begin to go on a journey of character formation and development. Now, everything that I know about folks today, but especially what I'm learning about this Generation Alpha coming up, says that was a really good move because something significant will happen with those 20 kids mm-hmm. that, will, that will haunt them and form <laughs> them across the decades. But that cattle run with, with the 150 moving from the recreation room to the music room and just screaming, you know, that wasn't going to do a whole lot. But boy, it looks good on the statistical records. On, in the old metrics, it looks good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But finally, you know, what are we doing here? And so I, I, that's a children's ministry, but, but, but to go back to the way we've done program, a highly programmatic ministry, trying to involve as many people as we can, moving them from, from place to place to place, um, it's all good. But if we do not have the capacity to do the relational work, to stop and to listen, and to tell our stories, and to take the time to go off the script, and to be present with one another. If we don't have the, if we're not organized to do that, we need to reorganize. That in itself is probably a revolution. Yeah, all of the stuff we've been talking about, it seems like it's so simple and obvious, but it is really revolutionary, because it's it's actually, uh, when you think about it, a shift of theological grounding. Hmm a whole way of being. And that's hard. Will the church as we know it exist in 50 years? Wow, that's that's something to ponder, isn't it? I have a hunch that there will be uh, remnants um, because I think that they that the church serves a particular purpose for people moving through stages of development. And the church that's configured today helps in that traditional stage. But I think that there's going to be 
stuff that we just wouldn't, it, it's beyond weird. <laughs> it's going to look beyond weird, Paul. <laughs> How about you? What do you think? I think that it's like an iceberg. I think there's going to be a little bit that we see above the water, but a lot of it is not going to be able to be measured through the members of a, of a who are attached to a particular building or a particular program. It's going to be resources and conversations and alliances that are just very hard to map. And I think that's the playing field. It, it, and so there will be some challenges there in that kind of a, of a decentralized world. When I say decentralized, mm -hmm. decentralized, the church is no longer, the organizational institutional church is no longer at the center of, what, of the church. And so how you try to, let's say you want to do an initiative in raising biblical literacy, it's not like you can stand up on Sunday morning and recruit people to sign up for the Bible studies it'll have to be in a whole different way, you know, mm -hmm. because I do believe biblical literacy makes for a good church, but it's not, it's going to be diffused, decentralized. And a lot of it is going to be hard for us to see and recognize if we're just looking for what's showing up at the church building. That would be one hunch that I have, but who knows? Yeah. And I think that along with that, you know, our whole ordination process and the role of the elder in Methodist circles. It, it's calling for a shift there as well of, you know, what, what's the ordination is to administer this, the sacraments and kind of look after the, the administration of the church. And I think it's going to be more looking like the keeper of the lineage and the shaping and forming of disciples in the world, which will be much more almost like a Celtic approach to ministry. This last weekend, we, we worshiped with some friends out of town at their Lutheran church. And this Lutheran church, it's ELCA, and the ELCA is ready to spew it out of its mouth because the church, the people of the church, have decided that in their understanding of the priesthood of believers, that anybody in that church can serve communion to anybody. And it's driving the denomination crazy. <laughs> <laughs> and we will continue to, to um, hit our heads against the wall around those kinds of questions for a little while. Yeah. Some of us longer than others. Until we can't anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Until we have a, a headache that's just, yeah. But, but again, that speaks to sort of the decentralization of things. Mm -hmm. And um, the, the concept of priesthood of believers has been around for a long, long time. But it's making a lot of sense in a lot of places at this time. So, Paul, um, I have a question for you in terms of this article that you wrote. Yeah. You, um, at the end of the article talk about how your stance, let's say your contemplative stance in the midst of this crisis, and you offer some really compelling ways of being that might be different for people to try on. And share with us one of the major suggestions that you make in that article as we close out our conversation today. There, there, were, there are a couple things that linger with me from that, that last part of the article. 
but one is about continuing to just gather around tables and fires mm-hmm. with good people to break bread and tell stories, whether it's officially a church function or whatever, that 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 it's in that kind of space that we will discover God's new thing. That was one. The other is, is I really want to pay attention to young, very young people, because they're going to have a wisdom about what's really going on that I'm going to miss, because I'm 60. Mm-hmm. And there may have been a time when I had a better read on culture than I might have right now, because I really don't, I, I'm not a TikTok user, okay? And I'm not, so there's a whole con- world of conversation that I, I'm just, I'm not checked into, but I do need to be paying attention to young people. And so I think in the, in, in the, in the next few years of my life, I, I, I really believe that building relationship and partnership and receiving the reverse mentoring that I can receive from Gen Z and soon Gen Alpha will be very helpful to me if I'm going to be helpful to the church in the next 20 years. So I'm done reading Lyle Schaller. He was great. He was he was awesome. But that's not going to help me at this point. And there you have it, folks. Another mic drop moment on the Church is Changing podcast. <laughs> Thank you, Paul. Beth, it was fun to get to chat today. And just as a reminder, the article that we have been referring to in today's podcast is linked in the show notes. You are such a wonderful conversation partner, and I'm so grateful we get to do this podcast together. Thank you. Thank you. Friends, this is Church's Changing Podcast. It is a ministry of the United Methodist Church. Church is Changing Podcast is a production of Discipleship Ministries, an agency of the United Methodist Church. Music is by Sanjay Singh. Visit all our podcasts at podcast.umcdiscipleship.org.